in fairness, uh, Daniel had told me that I should be prepared in case he couldn't make it back. Um, but I was traveling for business last week, and so the one thing I was not was prepared. Uh, <laughs> the only person more surprised than Daniel that he wasn't going to make it back was probably me. Uh, <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> Praise God. Um, I do, I will add a couple of things uh, to announcements before we begin and, and pray over the service. Just remember, if you're a new member, a new members class begins next week. Um, yeah, and so <laughs> it's an opportunity to, you know, get a foundation in what uh, CCPV is about. Really encourage you to sign up for that. Um, even if you um, are not brand new, either to the faith or to the church, I promise you, you'll get a lot out of it. I would encourage you to, uh, to sign up and make it for, for those services. It's being uh, led by uh, Rob Orr and Annie All Allison, who's around. Is Annie here? Oh, oh, over there. Okay, excellent. Yeah, so you can see Annie. Uh, Rob's not here this week either, but, but um, really recommend that you would sign up for that. And in addition for young adults, we are uh, gathering together with uh, CC West Grove, Calvary Chapel West Grove and Calvary Chapel South Bay to do a retreat June 3rd through the 5th. And so for young adults, if you are available that weekend, really encourage you to sign up for that. It's a great time to go out and fellowship with other believers in other churches. Um, and uh, the topic is intentional. And that's something we can all um, seek to be is more intentional in our walk. In fact, that's a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I always believe to go ahead and just give you guys, I don't like to hide the ball, just the summary of the service of the sermon. Um, that way, if you guys doze off, when we meet up later, you can go, oh, that was great. <laughs> it was all about, <laughs> and you'll know, because <laughs> I'm not going to hide the ball. Um, we're going to be talking about keeping our eyes on Jesus, because that is the center of what this walk of faith is. And the more we keep our eyes on Jesus, the more we see Jesus as he is, Everything else takes care of itself, and that's the reality. And I know we hear that, and there's a little bit of Christianese in that, because what does that really mean, right? When, you're, when you are in the midst of the storm, what does it mean to keep our eyes on Jesus? It's a reminder of first principles. It's a reminder that God is in control, that he's not surprised by that storm, you know, like the disciples in the back of the boat when the storm arises, and Jesus is asleep, and their accusation to Jesus is, don't you care if we perish? And so often our accusation to Jesus is, don't you care if we perish? And he stands and he says, shush. And he calms the storm. And uh, a lot of what I'm going to be teaching today comes from a book that I recently read by R.C. Sproul uh, called The Holiness of God. And that story too. And he says something happens when Jesus wakes up and he calms that storm. He says, the fear of those disciples over that storm is transferred into the proper place in the fear of Jesus. Who is this man? And that's where our fear should be placed, and that's where our focus should be placed. Who is this man? Um, and that is what we're going to be seeing today as we go through 1 Peter. We're looking at verses 13 through 17. And, I, and I'm going to say I can't highly recommend enough the book. If you've never read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, really encourage you to pick up a copy and, and read it. Um, it stirred me this week as I was traveling. It was such a powerful reminder to me to keep my eyes on the Lord um, and to remember always who he is and what his place is. And that's where we're going to find ourselves. The victory 
and the power to overcome in this life is going to come when we see Jesus and recognize him as he is. And Peter is going to tell us why this is necessary. Uh, it's necessary because we're going to encounter opposition to our worship of this same Jesus. Right? The world rejected him when he walked the earth, and the world continues to reject him for who he is. And we're going to encounter suffering in this world because of that opposition. And keeping our eyes on Jesus is how we overcome. You know, in the book of Revelation, in 12.11, we're giving a glimpse of the end from the beginning. We are told that the saints during the great tribulation overcome by the blood of the Lamb, and the word of our testimony. Now, what do we testify to? Well, that's what Peter's gonna show us. Peter has been exhorting us in our relationships. He has encouraged us to have hearts of submission in our various relationships as, as Daniel has taken us th through. And then last week, Rob shared with us and he ended with a call to Chaim, or life. Uh, that call, he reminded us, is a result of a submitted life to the source of life, that we experience the fullness of life when we are in submission to the source of life, was Rob's conclusion. And all the other submissions for which we've been talking about, whether it's to our boss or to the government or uh, wives to your husbands or whatever the relationship is, all of those other submissions are going to be a result of our ultimate submission to God and the recognition of his authority and the order that he has put in place. And then that submission is going to lead us. Our submission to God is going to lead us into the fullness of life. V'chayim, as Rob taught us last week. And then Peter ends verse 12 by reminding us that the opposite is true. And he uses this beautiful phrase. He says that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And it's a beautiful phrase, as dark as it is, because it's such an interesting contrast that we'll talk about in a little bit. But think about the implication. The face of the Lord is against or is, uh, is against those who do evil. This has an implication that life is found when the face of the Lord is towards those who are doing good, as he implies up above that. That as we are staring into the fullness and the shining glory of Jesus, that is where we find life. And for those who, who don't find their focus in that, they're going to find darkness that leads to death and destruction because they aren't keeping their eyes on Jesus. And so it's there we begin in verse 13 of chapter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in our hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, a reason, any reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You know, Peter begins in this section with a rhetorical question. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And we know this is a rhetorical question because this is coming from Peter. Uh, Peter, who ran away from a servant girl <laughs> when he was a fearful of being harmed <laughs> uh, because Jesus had been arrested. 
And so Peter knows full well, the same Peter who Jesus has promised, hey, you're going to be led where you don't want to go. He knows full well that there is harm to those who are followers of Jesus. And so when he says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good, he's not referencing a mortal harm because there have been lots of martyrs for the body. He's talking about the harm that comes not from the single life, as Rob distinguished last week, but our double life, that secondary life, the chayim. Who is there that can harm the life that God gives us when we are living in service to him? Jesus made this clear. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the harm that we should be concerned about. And this is going to be an ongoing theme for Peter. It's almost as if Peter is talking to himself as he prepares to be led where Jesus told him he was going to be led. And so much of the second half of 1 Peter we're going to read is Peter's going to be talking about suffering, the suffering of the Lord, the suffering we're going to encounter, the expectations of suffering in this life. It's almost like he's chatting with himself. Peter was no stranger to the fear that comes from the persecution and the suffering that is real in this life. And so he knows how to overcome it. And he says, even if you do encounter this suffering, first recognize that the suffering in the name of Jesus, you are blessed. And Peter here is parroting what he would have heard directly from the Lord Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount, where Jesus says there's a double blessing on those who suffer in his name. In Matthew 5, verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's our first blessing. He says, don't lose sight as you are encountering persecution in this world that you have been saved by grace. And the kingdom of God is yours. There is a promise of eternity for all of those who are persecuted in his name. He says, take courage in your salvation. And understand that for those who have rejected Christ, as Paul tells us in, in 2 Corinthians 2.16, for those people who reject Christ, you, all of you saints, have become the stench of death, a reminder of what the cost is for the rejection of Christ. So you should expect persecution. You're not a pleasant person to this world. You are a walking and living embodiment of the reality of God. And the world doesn't want to hear it. It's uncomfortable for them. And so he says, but know that the kingdom of heaven is yours. You have all eternity to enjoy all of God's goodness. And ours is the peace and the joy and all the fruits of the Spirit that, that come when we walk in the Spirit. And we are attuned to the presence of God in our life. And so we're blessed. But then God in his grace goes further. You know, I, I, uh, you, you often hear the expression, you can't outgive God. And You'll experience that in your walk, but you see it in the Bible time and time again. And here Jesus says, blessed you have the kingdom if you're persecuted. And he goes on in verse 11, and he said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other, all, all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, when I read things like that, it's like, it's mind boggling to me. Right? 
Jesus says that if we patiently endure, our reward in heaven will be great. How much more reward can you get when you've got everything? <laughs> I can't imagine what he's even referencing here. What is lacking in the, in the kingdom of heaven? And yet he says he's going to pile on reward upon reward in the kingdom of heaven. That's an incredible thought that only our, our God can promise because he's infinite and his goodness is infinite and his gifts are infinite. And so Peter says you are blessed. Don't lose sight of your blessing. And yet he doesn't end there. He gives us the formula for not being afraid. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But, how do we do that? In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, we're going to spend some time talking about what that means. But before we do, I want to read the whole sentence, because it's a very long sentence that Peter writes. And I do want the context of this in the back of our minds as we look at what it means to honor Christ the Lord as holy. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, I know that many of us are familiar with this part of Scripture, particularly the part that says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. It's a very important part because we are called to go out into the world and preach the gospel because we are called in life to make disciples. And this here tells us how do we fulfill, how do we partially fulfill that calling? It's not the only way and we shouldn't make that mistake. And so it's a very important part. But we shouldn't lose sight that that section, being prepared to make a defense, is sandwiched between two other things that we just read. The first part of that is to honor Christ the Lord as holy, which we're going to talk about. And then the second part of that is that we need to make that defense in gentleness and respect, making sure we maintain a good conscience in the process. You see, too often as the body of Christ, we ruin our witness with our attitude, right? And we need to be very, very careful. Telling someone that Jesus loves them with a snarl on your face does not get the message across. <laughs> it is to be done in gentleness and respect, right? God honors dishonorable people for whatever reason, in his mercy and grace, and we are to do the same. And so we need to be very careful at how we share the love of Christ. But first, let's go back to the first part. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Boy, I, I can't tell you how this, uh, this scripture just resonates in my head as I spent time contemplating the holiness of God. Like Peter's reference to persecution, it's reminiscent of Jesus' own teaching. See, Jesus is the one who taught, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And Peter here says the same thing. He says, don't be afraid or troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Notice the focus on the second person of the Godhead. He doesn't say God. He doesn't just say Lord. He says Christ the Lord as holy. 
Peter would have been talking to a primarily Jewish audience that has been exiled out of Jerusalem and exiled into all these areas of Asia Minor. And so any argument um, around the position of Jesus being only a rabbi to the original disciples and all the teaching about Jesus somehow being God, being a Pauline introduction to the scriptures, wiped out right here. Peter, the one who walked with Jesus for three years, the, the one who denied him, you know, the one who was restored by him after his resurrection, says you need to, to reverence and honor Jesus Christ as holy in your heart giving him the same uh, reverence and honor that you give the Lord your God. That word Lord here is kyrios, which is, is the word substituted for the Hebrew word for Lord, but the very name of God. And Peter says we need to honor this Jesus as holy. Understand that the same holy light in which we place God, Jesus is deserving of it. We are called to honor him. And it's a wonderful phrasing. It's a wonderful phrasing because Peter does not tell us to understand God's holiness. And sometimes in the Western church, we want to replace study with the experience of God. And we need to recognize that the studying that we do is meant to lead us into an experience of knowing God. And this is a very important distinction. Because to honor God is to, to give him high esteem. It is to give him the respect that he is due. The holiness of God is something we have to study about because we wouldn't understand it otherwise. But it can't end there. An intellectual knowledge of holiness will not do as God commands us. Ultimately, God calls, tells us that holiness is to be experienced. God wants us, longs for us, to have an experiential knowledge of who he is. He tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. The references with regards to God involve our senses. And the holiness of God is the very essence of the nature of God. And the only way to experience it is for God to reveal it to us. And when God has revealed it to us, we must then honor it as it deserves to be honored. We are to cherish it and give it due respect. And that's the importance of the word honor. It's something that is, is revealed to us and now we have to handle it correctly in some manner. We've all been given to some degree the knowledge of the holy. At least if you're saved, you have been. You wouldn't have gotten saved otherwise unless you recognize that Jesus is truly Lord. And so that, that call to honor is to take that revelation to whatever degree it has been given to you, in whatever measure you understand it, and to cherish it, and then seek more of it. The other thing we need to recognize is that the holiness of God is not about us. We don't measure God's holiness by how good or righteous we behave or act. We need to be very careful when we try to substitute that, right? When we say, Look how holy God is, I'm a good person, in whatever measure that is. Now, recognizing the holiness of God is going to lead us to do what? Lead more holy lives. And the result of it will definitively be a more righteous life. But we can't confuse the two. We can't come before God with a sense of holiness and think that is honoring. Look at me, Lord. Look at how good I am representing you on this earth. That is not honoring 
the holiness of God. And when we read in the Bible about people experiencing and encountering the holiness of God, we often see two things. I'm only going to highlight two things. We see a lot of other things. But I want to highlight two important things that I believe Peter is emphasizing here. The first of those is that those who encounter the holiness of God usually end up on their face and on their knees before that holy God. See, that doesn't come from an intellectual understanding. Our mind doesn't usually lead us to fall to our knees. When we see people drop to their knees in the Bible as they experience God, it's because of a gut-wrenching emotional experience that causes them to plant down in recognizing who this God is. Honoring Christ the Lord as holy should leave us breathless. That is what we see in the Bible. The breathless experience of Isaiah or Ezekiel or Paul or John or Peter or James. This breathless experience comes from experiencing God as he truly is, not as we have imagined him in our mind, not, not as someone has explained him to us. You know, we've, we've all had an experience like this. I'll use a terrible example, but it's real, right? We've all passed someone uh, or come in contact with someone, and they're strikingly beautiful. <laughs> and you pause for a minute, right? They catch you a little breathless. And that is the experience when we encounter the perfect beauty of God as he is. And then we are called to seek more of that experience, to, to seek it through his word, through prayer, through what Nick was sharing with us this morning as we lift our hands and praise this holy God because he's worthy, simply because he's worthy. See, if, if Jesus had never come to die on the cross and save us, there would be tens of thousands and thousands upon thousands of angels falling in their face and worshiping God because he's worthy. And that should be our reaction, because he's worthy. Most of us have experienced to some measure this experience of breathlessness in our salvation, right? Most of us have had a touch of the inexplicable need for God that draws us to the cross. It's probably how most of us got saved. That experience is, is captured by Paul of Tarsus as he's on his way to go and kill Christians and he sees Jesus and he's knocked to the ground and he's blinded and he can't even see. And Jesus says to him, he says, he says Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? And what is Paul's response? Lord, who are you? <laughs> he, he may not know who this Lord is, but he knows he's Lord. <laughs> he senses his presence. And that's the experience of salvation. When we cry out to a God we don't yet understand, but we understand our need for him. Lord, Lord, who are you? And we surrender ourselves to that ultimate need. So some of us, most of us, have experienced a little bit of that sense of the breathlessness that comes from meeting Jesus. And God promises that those who seek him with all of our heart, he will be found. You know, I used, to, I used to think of that statement as God testing our sincerity. That, you know, if you, if you pursue me with all your heart, then you'll find me. And God's, God's saying to us, you know, I want to know how serious you are about getting to know me. 
And reading this book, I'm like, no, 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 I've thrown that idea out the window. (laughs) I increasingly believe that God will reveal himself to those who, who seek him with all their heart because God is responding to the measure to which we can bear his presence. God doesn't want to overwhelm us. He's merciful. And if he revealed the fullness of his being until we were ready for it, we couldn't receive it. That's so often what we see in the Bible. And that's the second part that that we want to talk about a little bit here. Because secondly, and this is something, again, I took from the book, um, and it gave voice to my own experience in experiencing God. But the holiness of God is something that is, is both attractive to us and repulsive at the same time. And that's a hard thing for a Christian to say, but it's a reality. That, that sometimes as we get closer to God, it pushes us away. We want to believe that we want all of God, but it's not always true. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we will admit that there are times we can't take any more of him. We're kind of like Peter, who, when he comes to this moment of experiencing God as he is, uh, you know, Jesus comes to him, and and, uh, he's been preaching, and he says, go out and throw the net, and Peter says, we've been fishing all night, and he says, but, you know, because you tell me to, I'm going to do it. And he puts down the net, and he catches such a great amount of fish. And and this is Peter's response to, to that recognition, this bulb goes off of who this person is in the boat with him. It says, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And there's some times where the the, the presence of God's holiness in our lives causes us to do the same thing. Ah, I can't take anymore. It overwhelms us, and it causes us to shrink back. And that's part of honoring Christ as holy. Peter had this experience. He understood the intensity of God's presence, that it can be more than we can handle. And sometimes it it causes us to draw back the same way Isaiah did. You know, Isaiah sees God on his throne, and he falls to his knees, and he says, I am undone. I'm falling apart at the presence of this God. And that's how we feel. We become undone as we become aware of his perfection and as we are made increasingly aware of our imperfections. And so how do we bear the presence of God? How can we honor his holiness if parts of us just can't even stand to be in his presence? Well, in Hebrews 4.14, we are told this. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of God that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And a a similar concept is given to us in Hebrews 10.37 where it says this. It says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. You see, our boldness to come to the throne of God is based on what Christ has done. 
To honor Christ as holy is to rest in the assurance of his salvation. We come humbly to the throne unworthy, but we come boldly to the throne because we have been washed by the blood of Christ. And the more that we recognize that cleansing that comes through Jesus Christ alone, the closer we can come to the throne of God. We must, in essence, allow ourselves to come apart. When, when Isaiah says, I'm undone, God says, good. <laughs> and that is when God responds to his being undone, his recognition of the need, and he, takes a, a, he has an angel take a coal, and he touches the lips of Isaiah. And Isaiah is able to stand again. And the same thing for us, when we come before the throne of God, we should be undone. And as we fall apart, we take off our filthy rags and we put on the righteous robes of Christ that allow us to stand in his presence and honor him as holy. It is resting in his blood that allows us to stand in his presence. But if we take our eyes off of him even for a second to focus on ourselves, to be conscious of ourselves while in his presence, we're going to shrink back. We're going to be undone. We need to keep our focus exclusively on what God has done through Jesus Christ for us. Otherwise, we can't stand. Then we can be undone in the good way. We can be undone by the good news that Jesus died for our sins. And we can take comfort in his presence. The response to honoring God is to pick up our cross daily to allow the old man, our old nature, to remain crucified on that cross. For those of you who've recently been baptized, to die with Christ so that you may be resurrected to new life, encased and robed by the righteousness of Christ. And as we keep our gaze upon him and as we revel in his perfection, he graciously wraps us in his light and welcomes us into his presence. To turn our gaze back upon ourselves and focus on ourselves in any way, whether it's to long for our past and the life that we used to have, or to think that there's anything good that we can bring to the relationship, to try to impress God with our good deeds or service, anything regarding ourselves is going to cause us to shrink back. We have to see how this naturally leads then to that next part, right? enrobed in the righteousness of Christ, standing in the presence of God, should naturally lead us to the ability to defend the hope <laughs> that we have in Christ. And that's what Peter encourages, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Now, this doesn't mean that the only time you share is when somebody asks. I hope we all know that. Uh, we should be sharing the gospel, <laughs> right? In season, out of season, whatever it is. The good news of God should be on the tip of our tongue. But the important part here is to be prepared to make a defense for the reason for the hope that is in you. What is the first thing that we should do in order to prepare? Well, the first thing that we should do is to prepare our testimony. We all have a testimony. We all came to faith somehow. But have you taken any time to really sit down Write out your testimony. You know, I had someone share with me, and I love sharing it with people. You should have uh, three testimonies. You should have the elevator pitch, right? It's the 15 to 30 seconds when you're in the elevator, and somehow you get an opportunity to share Christ, right? Before you get to the lobby, have your pitch, right? 
My 32nd pitch is simply, I fell in love with the man of Jesus Christ as I read about him. As a kid growing up in the hood, I learned what real manhood was by observing Christ. And that dropped me to my knees. You have your two-minute pitch, right? When you have a little bit more time, and then you have your 30-minute coffee pitch. (laughs) But be prepared. Know what your testimony is. Write it out in advance so you can share. So you're not surprised by it, right? Be prepared for the reason of the hope that you have. Now, I know some of you are going to say, but my salvation story is boring. (laughs) I grew up in the church, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And now I'm a Christian. (laughs) I get that. I get that. But don't do that. Every salvation is a miracle of God. Don't diminish your testimony. Right? Took Jesus going to the cross, and it's powerful. You know, Gwen Lewis is a well-known missionary who has shared his very dramatic testimony here in this church prior to the days when we were Calvary Chapel, but it's such a dramatic testimony. He wrote a book about it, and it was made into a movie. And to hear his testimony is truly amazing and powerful and overwhelming. But he likes to share his favorite testimony. He was down in South America. Uh, He takes mission trips, short-term mission trips, and he took a bunch of kids from PV And he had this young lady, and he said, hey, go share your testimony, you know, uh, in some area with a bunch of hardened individuals. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but she was like, I don't have a testimony. You know, he's like, ah, go share. And, you know, she got up, and I was raised in the church, blah, 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 now I'm a Christian. (laughs) And according to Gwen Lewis, not a dry eye in the place. And these people got up and just wanted to pray with this young lady, and they, they just wanted to surround her and touch her because they were so touched that she knew a God who loved her enough to have spared her all the misery of their lives. And that was the prayer for their children. And that was their desire to know that God who had kept her in such purity. There's there's no boring testimony because it's not our testimony. It's testimony of what Jesus has done for each and every single one of us. And so be bold with your testimony because it's the testimony of Christ. It is honoring him as holy to recognize our need for him and the sacrifice he made that we might be welcomed in his presence. But the preparation should go deeper than that. We are called to be able to defend the reason for our faith. We are to have a reasoned answer. It's actually a legal term like a defense attorney who has prepared for trial someone who has examined the evidence and prepared a verbal case for the reality of our salvation. And this takes an understanding of truth. You know, Jesus is the truth. All truth points back to Jesus. And as such, Christians should be the most learned people on earth. We we have to be able to cut through all of the nonsense that passes for truth in this world. We can't defend what we don't understand. And one of the fallacies is the notion that Christian faith is a blind faith, that we are just to believe and that is enough. No. Christian faith is not a blind faith. It's not equivalent of belief. Belief is only part of it. We can believe many things that aren't actually based on knowledge. That is not what we are called to. Christianity is an evidence-based assurance of the things we believe. It is the evidence of Christ's resurrection 
the evidence of the uniqueness of the Bible and the Word of God, unique in its construction, unique in the fulfillment of prophecy, unique in the legacy of what it has done in this world, the evidence of the impact of the church, the evidence of the change in your life when you met Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And we diminish the notion of faith when we dismiss the reality that Christian faith is founded upon the knowledge of truth and that all truth points back to Jesus Christ himself. The Bible is full of pointing to the historical record that undergirds our faith. It is the testimonies of eyewitnesses who saw the risen Christ and suffered and died in order to proclaim that truth because they would not deny the reality of that truth. That is a reasoned faith. We are to understand that there is evidence in nature and science. In Romans, Paul's appeals to the fact that all nature declares the reality of God. And there are scientists who will share their stories of salvation because they concluded from the evidence that God had to be real. Anthony Flew was not a scientist, but he was a very famous philosopher and an atheist. And at the age of 81, he completed his last book and he wrote this. I now believe that the universe was brought into existence by an infinite intelligence. I believe that this universe's intricate laws manifest what scientists have called the mind of God. I believe that life and reproduction originate in a divine source. Why do I believe this? Given that I expounded and defended atheism for more than half a century? Fifty years of atheism. The short answer is this. This is the world picture as I see it that has emerged from modern science. In short, my discovery of the divine has been a pilgrimage of reason and not of faith. There's no evidence Anthony Flew ever came to Christ or to Christianity. But he had to recognize the impossibility of denying the reality that there was an intelligent mind that created all that we see around us. We are to have a reasoned faith to take it to the next step. <laughs> But that intelligence being personified humanity came in the form of a man and died for the sins of all humanity. We have the history of Israel as a testimony, the history of the church, the history of the world, and the fact that we date our very calendar by this person, Jesus Christ. All these things point to the reality of who Jesus was and how he affected this world. The Bible encourages us to study, to show ourselves approved. Of course, not all of us can be experts in everything. But we are to prepare ourselves. We are to equip ourselves with sound truth and reason that allows us to defend the truth of what brought us to this faith. But we must do so in humility and love, with gentleness and respect. Note that we are to maintain a good conscience. What does the Bible even mean by that? It's not a clear conscience before the people we're sharing this with. It's a clear conscience before God, right? Right? that we do this in a manner worthy of the God that we are talking about. It's a reminder that even as we witness to others, we do it before the Lord and for the Lord. Yes, people need to hear the gospel truth, but it's more important that we speak the truth in honoring to Jesus than it is that they even hear. And note the same is true for those who revile us. He goes on to say that those who revile us may be put to shame but again, our focus has to be on him. If we're expecting justification on this earth, we're going to be very disappointed. 
If we think it's a shame that causes people to come and apologize to you, ah, no, 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 no. What is the shame that they're going to experience is standing before a holy God and recognizing that he's real. The Bible tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the shame they will experience. Let them leave it up to the Lord. Now, there is one time and manner in which people on earth will feel shame when we share the gospel, and that is when they're cut to the heart and they give their life to Christ. <laughs> Amen for that. And their shame will be turned to glory. Praise God. That's what we want to see. But we're not sharing the truth of God in order to shame people. We're doing it with gentleness and respect out of love and our desire to see them saved. And then we end this section with this reminder. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will. That's a really important caveat, right? For those of you who want to be martyrs, <laughs> don't. <laughs> we don't seek martyrdom. <laughs> If it comes, so be it, if that is God's will. But we don't get any extra points in heaven for being a martyr, <laughs> right? Don't seek it. It's better to suffer for doing good if it is God's will than for doing evil. The reality of suffering in this broken world is inevitable. All nature cries out to be liberated from the bondage of decay that has come onto earth due to man's sins. And we look forward to the day that we get to be glorified in a, in a perfect heaven where God is our light but until that time, we must deal with the consequences of our actions in this fallen world. And so Peter says, be wise. Don't suffer because you're doing the wrong thing. If you're going to suffer, let it be for a good reason. Let it be on behalf of Christ, righteously, not unrighteously. Why? Because when we suffer righteously, it is only circumstantial. But what did we start with? No real harm can be done to our soul when we suffer on behalf of Christ, we can maintain the chayim that we learned about last week, even as we suffer through this world. Where is the harm to you if you are zealous for what is good? Yet if you suffer unrighteously, then your soul will be harmed. You will feel the effects that come from that kind of unrighteous suffering. It will drag you into darkness and magnify whatever suffering you're experiencing. Without repentance and turning to Jesus for salvation, after all that suffering on earth, you then go to an eternal death and damnation. That's suffering. That's a suffering we pray no one experience because Christ is the answer. And the solution is to honor Christ as holy, to keep our eyes on the Lord of glory, and to pray that he continue to reveal himself to us. And that's what we're going to do now as we worship the Lord some more. It's what we're going to do for all eternity. And as we worship and, and sing this closing song, let's have that sense of eternity springing up out of our hearts as we see Jesus as he is. Now, and if you're here and a lot of this was kind of like, you know, uh, the kids in Peanut, wah, 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 and half of it flew way past your head because you don't know this Christ and you've never experienced him. I want to encourage you today. Now, today is the day for salvation. As we sing and worship, we're going to have people here up front. Come and let us share the truth of the gospel with you, the good news that Jesus died for your sins and you can stand 
before a holy God clothed in his righteousness and feel welcomed and be encouraged. For the rest, let's concentrate on Jesus. Let's pray that he would reveal more of himself. Let's pray that we would get ourselves out of the way that we can experience the fullness of that revelation. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, what a blessing it is to just contemplate the holiness that is our God. Father, we couldn't even scratch the surface of what that holiness looks like, but we know that it leaves us breathless. <laughs> oh, Father, as we breathe out praises to you now, would we be left breathless in the reality of who you are, that you are worthy of all praise and honor, that you are worthy of all glory, Lord God. And Father, that we can come before your throne, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. May we take that out into this world, seeking to honor you and to, to share a defense for the hope that we have, Lord God, that others may come to know you as we know you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.